you have your Bibles, if you would look with me this morning, the Gospel of John, chapter 3. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, we provided one there for you. Just turn to John 3. Um, we're going to get there, maybe a little while, but just hold your place there in John, chapter 3, as we talk this morning about Jesus, our Savior. How many of you would agree with me this morning that it's good to know who you are and where you're going? Don't you think that's a good idea? Um, if you were going to take a trip across the United States and you were to ask me to go with you, uh, there's a couple of things I would want to know. The first is this, I would want to know where we're going, what direction, um, and I would want to know why we were going. I would want to know where and I would want to know the purpose about the trip. Um, if, if you were going, let's say, across the states to Disneyland and your plan was to stop at McDonald's along the way for our dining opportunities, I would probably decline the trip with you. Uh, you know, to be real honest with you, I'd rather have a sharp stick stuck in my eye than go to a theme park, just to tell you how I feel about it this morning. <laughs> and secondly, McDonald's. Well, I've been thinking recently about a lawsuit against McDonald's for these, these towering golden arches that they put up in the air to deceive our kids. Yeah, I'm in that stage now. We have a little boy that's about three, and every time he sees those golden arches, I mean, it's nonstop until we go there. And, uh, you know, and it's not one of my favorite places to go, if you haven't figured that out. Yet, we, we're there quite often now. But if you were to go across the states, to, and your plan is to go to Disneyland, and we're going to stop on McDonald's all the way along the way, then I'm probably not going to want to go with you. Because I'm, I'm not interested in going that direction, and I'm not interested in the process of that journey. And I think it's the same. If we take that analogy and we bring it into our, our family, our, our church family here, I think it's significant today that, that you would know who we are as a church. If you're going to partner with us, if you're going to journey with us, then it would be important for you to know who we are and what we're committed to. Uh, that we would have um, like vision, like direction, like values. Because if you're here this morning and, and, and we don't share like vision or, or like values, then you're not going to be very happy on the journey. And because you're not very happy, then I'm not going to be very happy. Um, so we, it's important that we would know who we are and where we're going if, if you're going to journey with us. So I, I want to take the next four weeks to talk about who we are, to talk about what we believe, uh, to tell you a little bit about Grace Covenant and how we're connected to the larger body of Christ, uh, and just share with you um, about what we're committed to here in our church family. Grace Covenant Church is a part of the International Church of the Foursquare Gospel. We are a part of a larger church family, a denomination, if you will. Uh, we're not independent uh, unto ourselves. We're connected with a, a family of believers. We have about uh, 1,900 churches in the United States. We have about 28,000 churches outside of the United States, which, which makes this statement. We, we are a, a denomination, a church family that has a huge commitment to worldwide evangelism. Uh, you, you saw that this morning. We're sending another team out. We're committed to carrying forth the hope of the gospel message around the world. But, but for our church family, our denomination that we're a part of, that's, that's a foundation. That's part of our, if you will, that's part of our DNA, our missions. And so we're committed to worldwide evangelism. But the Foursquare Church that we're a part of was actually birthed out of an evangelistic movement. In the early 20s, there was a lady by the name of Amy Simple McPherson who was traveling back and forth across the United States doing tent revivals. And it was out of her passion to see people born again into the kingdom that she began to raise up uh, other men and women to go out and, and preach the gospel, even as she was. And, and 
it was her desire to see the world come to know Christ as their Savior that Air Church family was formed. So she didn't set out to start a denomination. It was out of her passion for evangelism and her passion for the lost that the Foursquare family has evolved. Now, I was born into the Foursquare Church. I didn't so much choose the Foursquare Church. My father, my mom and dad uh, are Foursquare pastors in Arkansas where I grew up. Matter of fact, my dad's been a part of the congregation. He will be a 63 in August. He's been a part of the congregation there for 61 years. He's pastored the church for 35 years. Uh, so long-standing uh, time of service there in the church. But I was born into the Foursquare movement. However, as I've kind of thought about who we are as a church family, if I had not been born into the Foursquare movement, I think this is the family that I would have chosen to be a part of. And, and I want to tell you why. I want to share with you why I think the Foursquare family is a great family to be a part of. Uh, let me just give you several reasons. First is this. Our church family is committed to the Great Commission. We think it's the biggest deal going that people would come to know Christ as their Savior. It's the main thing. And so we spend lots of energy and lots of time strategizing, not only as a congregation locally, but as a larger church family, to see people born again in the kingdom. Secondly, our, our church family is committed to interdenominational evangelistic partnerships. In other words, we're concerned about what the other church is doing down the street, and we want to bless them in that. If you're here consistently, you know that something we do every time we gather is we pray for other churches. Why? Because it's not so much about grace covenant. It's not so much about the four square gospel as it is about the work of the kingdom. So why not, why not bless? We're not competing with others. We have the privilege of partnering with others. So we're committed to interdenominational partnerships. A third thing I love about our church family is our church family is committed to the full gospel message. We are a Pentecostal church a part of a Pentecostal denomination meaning this we embrace the dynamic of the Holy Spirit for our lives and for the church today um, another thing I love about our church family is is that we're committed to embracing the dynamic and the supernatural without being weird uh, we believe that you can live in and live out the dynamic of the supernatural without being some weirdo that marginalizes your influence and your effectiveness in carrying forth the gospel message. So to live in the dynamic of who God has called us to be and live in the dynamic of the power of the Holy Spirit, again, without, without being uh, weirdos in that. Another thing I love about our church family is that we're committed to the power of God's word and solid doctrine that, we're, that from beginning to end Genesis to Revelation we believe that God's word is true and active for us today as believers also another thing I love about our church family is that they give us the freedom here in our local community to lead as God would direct us so we don't have someone at headquarters in LA saying this is what you've got to do this is how you lead the church they give us an opportunity as leaders as the elders and staff would come together and fast and pray to seek the heart of God, then we have the freedom to carry that out. So it's not, um, it's not um, they don't dictate to us uh, how we should run the local church. They give us freedom as God would move on our hearts uh, to carry it out. Another thing I love about our church family is there's great accountability from the top to the bottom. I think everybody needs accountability. Every individual needs accountability. Every church needs a covering and needs accountability. And, and our church family creates that for us. So we're a part of, Grace Covenant Church is a part of the larger church family. And there's four key doctrines that are so foundational to who we are. And I want to take uh, a Sunday over the next four Sundays to talk with you about each of these key points of doctrine. The first is this, we believe in Jesus Christ, our Savior. And there's only one way to be saved, and that's through Christ. Secondly, we believe Jesus Christ, the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. Jesus told his disciples this, I'm not going to leave you comfortless, but I'm going to send the comforter. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit for you. I've been with you, but he's going to be in you. Next week, we'll talk about that. Also, we believe Jesus Christ, their healer. 
Not only did Christ die for our sins, but the scripture says that through the cross, there's healing for our bodies. Through the atonement, there's healing for our bodies. So we, we pray for people to be healed. We contend for the supernatural, the miraculous. And fourthly, we believe Jesus Christ is soon coming king. He's coming back. So we have uh, an expectancy. We're living with a sense of expectancy. Today could be the day that Jesus is going to return for us, the church. So again, the next four weeks, we're going to be t- taking each of these and, and talking through them. So you have a better understanding of of who we are and what we're committed to, what we believe. But let's begin this morning with this question, why did God make you? Scripture would tell us that he has uniquely crafted you. He's uniquely designed you. There's no one else in the world like you. Why did God make you? What is your purpose in life? Your purpose is greater than just being fulfilled. Your purpose is greater than happiness. Your purpose is greater than having a a good career, although nothing is wrong with any of those things. But your purpose has to be greater than those. And I think one of the deceptions of our society today is our society would say, you want to know your purpose, then you got to look inside of you. you got to discover yourself. And if you try to find purpose in that fashion, you're always going to be frustrated because you can never find your purpose by first looking inside of you. If you're going to find your purpose, you got to look to the one who made you. You've got to look to the God who created you. And you've got to find your purpose as it begins in relationship with him. So why did God make you? I think really three really simple reasons. The first is this. God made you so he could love you forever. I don't know any better way. I tried to find a complicated way to say it. I don't know any better way to say it than this. God's crazy about you. I mean, I mean you're the greatest thing happening according to the heart of our Father. You've heard me say this before, but, but if God has a refrigerator in heaven, you know what? Yeah, your picture's on it. I mean, if you were to come into our home, you know what, you know what you'd find? You'd find a refrigerator covered with great works of art done by our three-year-old that should be in a museum somewhere in the world today. I mean, they're phenomenal. Why are they there? We display them because, I tell you, our kids in this season of life are the greatest things that's happened in our lives. I could talk with you the rest of the day today about our children and all the wonderful things they're doing. I could bore you this morning with story after story because it's the big deal. If God has a refrigerator in heaven, your picture's on it. Why? Because he's crazy about you. If God carries a wallet, it's a whopping big one because he's got all of our pictures in it. And he's showing us off to everybody. Why? Because he loves us. Why did God make you? God made you so that he could love you forever. Secondly, God made you so that he could enjoy a relationship with you. If you look to the book of Genesis, the scripture says when God created Adam and Eve, this is what he did. In the cool of the evening, he would come and hang out with them. Now, that's my paraphrase, but I think that's what God was doing. He would just come down and kind of walk through the garden with Adam and Eve, just doing this, hanging out with them. Why? Because God created them for relationship. Relation. And that's why God's created you, that you would be able to live out a vital relationship with him. John 14, 23 says if we accept Christ as our Savior, that that. God the Son and God the Father, they come to dwell in us. Wow, that's pretty amazing. They come to hang out with us. Why? Because God created us for a relationship. Thirdly, God made you so that he could spend eternity with you. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God's put eternity in the hearts of man. John 3.16 says that God revealed his love by giving his son. He gave his son so that you might have this, that you might have eternal life. Listen, folks, your life is greater than just the time you spend here on this earth. That physical body that you're walking around in, that tent that you live in, according to Scripture, one of these days is going to pass away. But the real you is not going to die. The real you is going to keep on living. Why? Because God created you as an eternal being. He created you that he might be able to 
spend eternity with you. However, there's a problem. There's an obstacle. There's a problem that keeps you from what God has designed you for. And the problem is this, it's sin. Sin. As a result of the fall in Genesis 3, mankind is separated from God. The very relationship that we were created to enjoy was, was ruined as a result of of Adam's rebellion. We have inherited a sin nature from Adam that must be redeemed if we're to enjoy a relationship with God. Paul speaks of this dilemma in Romans 5, 18 and following. He talks about how, how one man, Adam, through his failure, through his rebellion, gave away a vital relationship with the Father. Yet this, Paul goes on to talk about the second Adam being that of Christ who came to redeem and to restore us back. See, we have this problem, a problem a problem that you can't fix on your own. It's a sin problem. You can't remedy your own sin problem. God knew that. That's why he came to the rescue. The interesting thing this morning is, is that we have this sin nature. The scripture says we've inherited a sin nature from our forefather, Adam. I mean, think about it. If you have little kids, like our little kids, my wife and I didn't have to take our son, who's two and a half, and say, Caleb, let us teach you how not to share your toys with other kids. We didn't have to do that. I, I didn't have to set Caleb down and say, Caleb, let me tell you how to lie. Let me teach you how to lie. I didn't have to do that. You didn't have to do that for your kids either. You know why? Because it's part of that sin nature that has to be redeemed. So we have, we have this obstacle. We have this problem. It's called a sin problem. But the solution, the solution that God has brought for us is the cross. Jesus Christ came to give his life to destroy the power and the penalty of sin and to make a way for mankind to experience and enjoy a relationship with God. The problem is sin. The solution this morning is the cross. Romans 3, chapter 22. Listen as I read from the message translation. Paul says, since we've compiled this long and sorry record as sinners... And we've proved that we're utterly incapable of living the glorious lives God wills for us. Then God did it for us. Out of sheer generosity, he put us in right standing with himself, a pure gift. He got us out of the mess that we were in and he restored us to where he always wanted us to be. Catch that. He got us out of the mess we were in and he restored us back to the place that he designed and created us to be. How did he do that? Through the cross. Through Jesus Christ coming to give his life. So the problem for every human being is sin. The solution for our sin problem is the cross of what Christ has done for us. This morning, I want us to read about one man's search for purpose. About one man's pursuit of relationship with God. His name is Nicodemus. Now Nicodemus had plenty of religion as we're going to find this morning. Yet something was missing in his life. And it was that something that was missing in his life that sent him on a search he came to Jesus at night. Let's begin reading John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless is born again. You may want to underline that phrase. No one can see the kingdom of God unless that individual is born again. 
Verse 4, how can a man be born again when he's old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he could not enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born again. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and of the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we've seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, speaking of the cross. So that everyone who believes in Christ may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have ever but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So Jesus informed Nicodemus here that he must be born again, that there had to be a spiritual heart change if he was to experience relationship with God and embrace eternal life. Now rather than talking with you about the theological process of being, of being born again and possibly this morning boring you to tears, I thought you might like to hear from two individuals who have experienced what it means to be born again in their lives and it radically turned their lives, their marriage, and their home around. I'm going to ask Mike and Lori Diefenbach if they would come and join me on the platform here this morning. I just want to share with you briefly that when Pastor Farrell first approached Mike and I about coming to talk, I thought he meant to address a small Sunday school gathering. I didn't realize that he meant for us to give our testimony in front of the entire congregation. So I'm a little bit nervous, so I have actually written something down that I'm going to be reading, but I just want you all to know that this is my heart on paper. Three and a half years ago, my husband left me for another woman. I was devastated. I felt so ashamed that my own husband didn't want me. I really didn't let anyone know what I was going through. We attempted a reconciliation and I got pregnant with our third child. I was so scared, but I felt that it was time to forgive and forget. I had the baby and then Mike met someone new. This time I was angry. How could he do this to me and to our children? I knew that he would never change and that there was no hope. My heart became hard and cold, and we separated again. I was an unbeliever, so I never reached out to God, but I did reach out to others. I let our public school know about our separation, thinking that they would watch out for behavior changes in our children. Instead, unbeknownst to me, some of the teachers gathered together and began to pray for our family. I shared with a very small circle of friends what was going on, and to my surprise, they never condemned Mike. They spoke words of affirmation and hope into my life. One friend brought my story to the members of her life group. And they joined in praying for our salvation 
and for our marriage. And that same friend brought me against all my objections to women of grace. There the women loved and welcomed me in spite of my skepticism. I wanted to join them to experience for myself what they had, but I held back. I knew that to accept salvation, I had to repent and ask forgiveness. But I really didn't understand what was it that I needed to repent. I was the faithful one. I had not committed adultery. I would like to read to you what I read one day in my class that finally opened my eyes. Repent means to do an about face, to turn from the current direction. If we don't take the time to remember from where we have fallen, we are tempted to believe that we have nothing from which to repent. We think, I don't need to repent. I've never been unfaithful. I have fulfilled my vows to my husband. But is this true? Faithfulness to our vows is more than the absence of an affair. Faithfulness is the presence of love, devotion, honor, loyalty, and encouragement. Faithfulness is positive and dynamic. It means we actively seek the welfare of our spouse. And to say, I've been faithful because I've never committed adultery, is to miss entirely God's meaning of faithfulness. The same day I read that paragraph, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and I repented of my sins and asked for forgiveness. God had an amazing and intricate plan for my life and my salvation. Even when I was turned away from him, he was at work, putting people like each one of you in my path to lead me to him. Salvation has given new meaning and purpose to my life. It has meant freedom from pain, shame, and anger. It has meant the redemption of my marriage, the baptism of my family, and the opportunity to serve God on a mission trip to Nicaragua. It has also allowed me the awesome privilege of sharing my testimony with you today. Thanks, Laura. So I've got the horns and the tail. Uh, Satan prowls. You guys know that. Satan knows your weaknesses. I've got big ones. He knows them. And Satan lies to you. Satan lies to all of us, and he lied to me. And I accepted the lies. I said, she doesn't love me. She doesn't care. If she loved me, and she really loved me and knew what I wanted, then I'd have what I want. The other lie is, and this is the big one, is that the kids will be okay. I'll, you know, I'll do what I need to do. I'll give them their money. I'll, I'll, I'll take care of things. Everybody will be okay because I will have the power to provide for them and do what they need to do. Unfortunately, these lies lead to sin, and they lead to destruction. The sin is the sin of myself, meaning, you know, worrying more about myself and what I can do instead of worrying more about what I can do for my children. Worrying more about drinking a bottle of wine and staying on the internet at night instead of going to bed at 9 o'clock with my wife and trying to maybe make some conversation with her or see where we can go with this whole thing. The sin is worrying about when my next encounter was going to be instead of maybe reading my Bible and looking for some kind of light and some kind of true freedom. So along came, after the sin, the death. I was spiritually dead. I died didn't care about anybody else but me. I wanted to know what I could do to change my situation. Socially, nobody liked me, but I said, I don't care about anybody. I'm okay. I'll stand strong. Physically, I wasn't eating. I was probably 
weighed another 15, 20 pounds less than I am now. I was dying a, a real, a real death. Financially, I had nothing. The kids were okay. They had the house. They had all their things. I thought, I'll take care of that. I didn't have a dime. I barely had enough money to pay for some gas money and, and food on the road because I travel. So ultimate death. It was, it was the end of it. But I still held on to the belief that there was something that I could do of myself. So after about a year, I finally decided there's, there's nothing I can do here. I've lost control. The lies have an end to them. And I finally came down to a point where I was on my knees and I didn't understand what it was else that I could do to try to save me or to save my wife or to, to do something to make things right. So I finally got so frustrated, I was upset and I didn't know what I was wanted to do. I got in my car and I started driving and I called the house because I thought the only way that I can really do this is if I go to some higher power, if I do something that allows me the chance to just let it go. I needed to let it go. I called my house. Lori wasn't there. Lisa McTie was there watching our kids. And I didn't know it, but she was praying for me that day. She was just saying to, my, to me, and she just told me this yesterday again, I hope Mike reaches the end. I hope his heart comes to a point where he accepts Jesus. And I called the house, and I remember I was crying, and she answered the phone. I'm like, where's Lori? She goes, well, what's wrong, Mike? I says, Lisa, I don't know what's going on. I didn't know I said this, but I said, Lisa, my heart, my heart is broken. I don't know where I need to go. And I was broken. I was, I didn't know what I needed to do. She said, you need to accept Jesus Christ as your savior. You need to go forward and you need to understand that the light and the Lord is the only way that you can gain control of your life again. It's not your life, it's God's life. It's not about your marriage, it's not about your kids, it's not about your job, it's not about yourself. It's about following the Lord because the only way that you're gonna gain life and get your life back, regardless of what she does, my walk with the Lord. And that day she said a prayer with me and I accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as my savior. My life turned around, amazing. I didn't understand it. God now has control. The lies now turned into the truth. She doesn't love me, but she does love me. The truth is, it's not about her. It's not about our marriage. It's about my personal relationship with God. God loves me. He never gave up on me. There's people out there that prayed for me every day. That is the truth. The other truth is that the kids will be okay was the lie. Well, the truth is the kids will be okay. But the kids will be okay because I have given up my life and my search because I'm following the Lord. The Lord will grant me the blessings and the things that I need to do to take care of my children and bring them up. So it is true. The other truth is, is that it, it's, like I said, it's not about me. It's about the Lord cursing. The cursing is gone. I decided that I'm not gonna curse anymore and say evil things. It wasn't a problem. Haven't done it since. Tried a million times before, couldn't do it. But with the power of the Lord, it was gone. Alcohol, I quit drinking, I just stopped. I haven't had a drink since. Don't care to, don't want to. It's not part of me. It's not part of the things that I wanna to do to you know, spread the word of the Lord and to be the person that I need to be. And the sex, well, I still like that part of me. I'm still a man, I'm still human. But now, when I go on the road, I walk with the Lord by my side. He's my best friend. And he will show me the direction and the love that I need to be. He will guide me through any type of sins or temptations. I'm strong. I'm a man of faith. 
I do not follow the lies anymore, and I wanna understand that the things that I need to do are the things that protect my family from Satan and keep those bad things and the lies away. Eternal life is mine. Eternal life is mine. My children are with me. My marriage is healed. I have more money than I know what I need to do with. I have friends who are with me for breakfast. I have friends with me. We have gone to trip with the trip to Nicaragua and um, our life has been saved. And that's it, just about me, it's about my walk. And that is the truth and thank you very much. I could talk with you all morning about what it means to be born again. And you may never catch it, but you just saw it. And you just heard it. And you just felt the emotion of what happens when we truly embrace Christ as our Savior. It changes, um, it changes purpose in life. It changes our perspective. It turns our lives around. Um, it begins to bring us to the purpose of that which God created us for. As we look back to this narrative of Nicodemus, we discover that Nicodemus did three things that we must all do, and they're really simple. The first is this, Nicodemus asked the right questions. He asked questions that would bring information about how we could receive eternal life. He asked questions not that would bring more religion and more rules, but that would bring relationship. He asked the right questions. And listen, folks, that's where it begins for every one of us. We must ask the right questions. We must identify there's a need in our lives that brings us to ask the right questions. The second thing Nicodemus did was this. He went to the right source. It's interesting, he didn't go to the philosophers of the day. He didn't go to the religion scholars of the day. He went to the right source. He went to someone who could deal with his sin problem. He went to Christ. Listen, folks, there's not many ways and there's not many sources. Don't be deceived by our society today. This is what our society tells us. Go to college so you can get a good education. You get a good education so you can get a good job. You get a good job so you can get a good career. You get a good career so you can make lots of money. And in that, you're going to be happy. I'm not against any of that. But I know the end of that doesn't bring you to the purpose God created you for. There's only one source of life, and it's Jesus Christ. If you're looking in all the other places, you're looking in all the wrong places. And you're going to end up broken and empty in your life. You heard Mike just tell his story, being really vulnerable and honest before you this morning. He chased all of these things. And it brought him to a place of emptiness in his life. Nicodemus went to the right source. Thirdly, Nicodemus opened his life to the only solution. The solution of Jesus Christ. The only answer for our sin problem is the solution that Jesus offers through the cross. I love what Dr. Billy Graham has to say in his book, The Key to Personal Peace. Listen as I read. He says, sin is what we're all suffering from today. And it won't up with fancy, more attractive labels. We don't need a new word for it. We may want to take a light view of sin and refer to it as human weakness, but God says it brings death. We may try to call it trifle, but God calls it tragedy. We would pass it off as an accident, but God says it's an abomination. We would want to excuse ourselves from sin, but God, God must convict us of it and wants to save us from it. Sin is no amusing toy. It's a terror to be shunned. 
It's interesting, the Apostle Paul would say somewhat of the same in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, where he would say the wages of sin, the cost of sin is death. But the gift of God to you and I today is that of eternal life. Uh, how, how can you be born again? How can you be born again? How can you experience what Nicodemus experienced? How can you experience what Mike and Lori talked about this morning? Three things. The first is you've got to admit. You must admit that you're a sinner and that you need Jesus in your life. See, the first step is always a step of, of recognition, recognizing the need. Listen, if you never understand that you have a desperate need, then you'll not be seeking a solution. I never think about how I'm going to how I'm going to resolve a flat tire until I have a flat tire. When I have a flat tire, then I wrestle with the issue. But until I have the flat tire on the automobile, I never think about having to fix the problem. And the first thing you've got to do is you've got to recognize that there's a problem. The problem is this. You need Jesus in your life. You're not in control. You need Christ. Secondly, you need to believe. Believe that God loves you and that he has made a way to relationship with himself and eternal life by the cross. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be born again. You've got to believe. It's not enough just to have the facts. It's not enough just to have the knowledge. If you're here this morning, then you've heard the knowledge. You have the information. You can't walk away from this place today and say, well, I didn't know. You know. But, it's, but knowledge alone won't save you. It's got to get from your head. You're, I'm convinced from my study of Scripture that there's many who's going to miss heaven by 18 inches. And it's the 18 inches from their head to their heart. They had the knowledge in their head, but they never came to a place that they embraced it and believed. And the Scripture says that we must believe in our hearts. So at first, admit you have a need. Secondly, is believe. Then third is confess. Confess that, that Jesus Christ is your Savior. See, Jesus came to give his life that we might have life. He came to restore us back to the original purpose for why we were created. Now we simply need to open our lives and to make a decision to receive Christ as our Savior. See, at the end of our lives, at the end of our lives, we're going to have to answer two questions. Every one of us, according to Scripture, We'll have to stand before God and answer two questions. The first is this. God's going to ask you, what did you do with my son? What did you do with Jesus Christ? Your answer to that question determines where you'll spend eternity. Heaven or hell hinges on this. What did you do with Jesus Christ? The second question God's going to ask you is, what did you do with that which I gave you? What did you do with the resources, the abilities? I blessed you abundantly. What did you do with it? The first question determines where you, spend where you spend eternity. The second determines what you'll do while you're in eternity. But Jesus Christ came to do this, to seek and save those who were lost. Jesus Christ came to restore us back to the relationship that was lost in the fall in Genesis 3. Jesus Christ came to rescue us, to solve our sin problem. But we have a responsibility, and our responsibility is to open our lives to Christ. In the year 1829, in the city of Philadelphia, there was a man by the name of George Wilson. George Wilson robbed the U.S. mail. In the process of robbing the U.S. mail, he took someone's life. He was caught, 
He was put on trial. He was found guilty, and he was sentenced to die. They were going to hang George Wilson. Well, George had some friends who had close relationships with President Andrew Jackson. They went to President Jackson. They said, President Jackson, George Wilson made a poor decision. He's a good man. These are all the things he's done. They began to speak of George Wilson's life. So President Andrew Jackson actually wrote a pardon. The President of the United States gave pardon to George Wilson. So they took the pardon back to George Wilson. They said, George, good news. He said, the President's given you a pardon. You don't have to die. The interesting thing about George Wilson is he refused the pardon. He wouldn't accept the gift of life, the pardon from the president. So the news came back to President Jackson, and he didn't know what to do. I mean, he'd never been in a situation. I mean, who would ever think that someone would reject a pardon? So President Andrew Jackson, not knowing what to do, went to the state Supreme Court for them to make the decision, and Chief Justice Marshall made this ruling. He ruled that a pardon is a piece of paper, the value of which depends upon its acceptance by the person implicated. It's hardly to be supposed that a person under the sentence of death would refuse to accept a pardon. But if it's refused, then it's not a pardon. George Wilson must be hanged. So George Wilson was executed, although his pardon lay on the desk in the sheriff's office. Wow. And the same is true for us. Jesus Christ came to, to bring pardon for us. He came to free us from our death sentence, our death penalty. But it's really no pardon at all until we accept the pardon. The pardon was brought through the cross, but we must accept the pardon if we're going to be freed from the sentence of death and we're going to be saved from our sin problem. So I would ask you today, have you been born again? Have you accepted the pardon that Christ has granted to you? freedom for your life. If you've not, I want to give you that opportunity today. I'm convinced there's no greater decision you'll ever make in your life than receiving Christ as your Savior. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you this morning for your love and your grace for us. God, I thank you today that a pardon has been granted. For Lord, this is what I understand, Lord. And it's not enough that you would grant a pardon through the cross, that you would give your life for our lives. Lord, we must accept, we must admit that we have a need. We must believe in our heart. And Lord, according to your word, we must confess you, embrace you as our Lord and Savior. Lord, if there would be individuals here today, Lord, who have not received that pardon, Lord, I pray, I pray that their hearts would be drawn to you. Lord, I pray that they would understand the significance of the decision that's before them today. With every head bowed and eye closed, if you're here this morning and you would say, Pastor, I've not opened my life to Christ. I've not been born again. But I want to do that today. I want to get that knowledge from my head to my heart. I want to admit my need. I want to believe in Christ my Savior. I want to receive Him. I want to accept that pardon this morning. If you're here today and you've never made that decision, but you want to today, would you just raise your hand? I would love to be able to pray with you this morning. We have some material we want to give you.